Chapter 10, Part Number 19 of The Assault on Mount Everest, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Caveat. The Assault on Everest, 1922 by various authors. Chapter 10, The Third Attempt by George Lee Mallory. The project of making a third attempt this season was mooted immediately on the return of Finch and Geoffrey Bruce to base camp. There, in hours of idleness, we had discussed their prospects and wondered what they would be doing as we gazed at the mountain to make out the weather on the Great Ridge. We were not surprised to learn when they came down that the summit was still unconquered. We were not yet prepared to accept defeat. The difficulty was to find a party. Of the six who had already been engaged, only one was obviously fit for another great effort. Somerville had shown a recuperative capacity beyond the rest of us. After one day at the base, he had insisted on going up again to Camp 3 in case he might be of use to the others. The rest were more or less knocked out. Moore's head frostbitten fingers and toes, from which he was now suffering constant pain, caused grave anxiety of most serious consequences, and the only plan for him was to go down to a lower elevation as soon as possible. Norton's feet had also been affected. He complained at first only of bruises, but the cold had come through the soles of his boots. His trouble, too, was frostbite. In any case, he could not have come up again, for the strain had told on his heart, and he now found himself left without energy or strength. Geoffrey Bruce's feet also were so badly frostbitten that he could not walk. Finch, however, was not yet to be counted out. He was evidently very much exhausted, but an examination of his heart revealed no disorder. It was hoped that in five or six days he would be able to start again. My own case was doubtful. Of my frostbitten fingertips, only one was giving trouble. The extremity above the first joint was black, but the injury was not very deep. Longstaff, who had taken an interest which we all appreciated in preventing us from doing ourselves permanent injury, pointed out the probability that the fingers already touched and highly susceptible to cold would be much more severely injured next time, and was inclined to turn me down from his medical point of view on account of my fingers alone. A much more serious matter was the condition of my heart. I felt weak and lazy when it was a question of the least physical exertion, and the heart was found to have a thrill. Though I was prepared to take the risks with my fingers, I was prepared to take none with my heart, even had General Bruce allowed me. However, I did not abandon hope. My heart was examined again on June 3rd. No thrill was heard, and though my pulse was rapid and accelerated quickly with exertion, it was capable of satisfactory recovery. We at once arranged that Somerville, Finch and I, together with Wakefield and Crawford, should set forth the same day. It was already evident that whatever we were to do would now have to wait for the weather. Though the Lama at the Rongbok Monastery had told us that the monsoon was usually to be expected around June 10, and we knew that it was late last year, the signs of its approach were gathering every day. Mount Everest could rarely be seen after 9 or 10 a.m. until the clouds cleared away in the evening, and a storm approaching from the West Rombok Glacier would generally sweep through the valley in the afternoon. Though we came to despise this blustering phenomenon, for nothing worse came of it than light hail or snow, either at our camp or higher, we should want much fairer days for climbing, and each storm threatened to be the beginning of something far more serious. However, we planned to be on the spot to take any chance offered. The signs that were even more ominous than usual as Finch and I walked up to Camp 1 on the afternoon of June 3rd 
We could hardly feel optimistic, and it was soon apparent that, far from having recovered his strength, my companion was quite unfit for another big expedition. We walked slowly and frequently halted. It was painful to see what efforts it cost him to make any progress. However, he persisted in coming on. We had not long disposed ourselves comfortably within the four square walls of our sangha, always a pleasant change from the sloping sides of a tent, when snow began to fall. Released at last by the west wind which had held it back, the monsoon was free to work its will, and we soon understood the great change of weather had now come. Fine, glistening particles were driven by the wind through the chinks in our walls, to be drifted on the floor or on our coverings where we lay during the night, and as morning grew the snow still fell as thickly as ever. Finch wisely decided to go back, and we charged him with a message to General Bruce, saying that we saw no reason at present to alter our plans. With the whole day to spend confined and inactive, we had plenty of time to consider what we ought to do under these conditions. We went over well-worn arguments once more. It would have been an obvious and easy course for which no one could approach us. So I've said simply, the monsoon has come. This is the end of the climbing season. It is time to go home. But the case we felt was not yet hopeless. The monsoon is too variable and uncertain to be so easily admitted as the final arbiter. There might yet be good prospects ahead of us. It was not unreasonable to expect an interval of fine weather after the first heavy snow, and with eight or ten fair days, the third attempt might still be made. In any case, to retire now, if the smallest chance remained to us, would be an unworthy end to the expedition. We need not run our heads into obvious danger, but rather than be stopped by a general estimate of conditions, we would prefer to retire before some definite risk that we were not prepared to take, or simply fail to overcome the difficulties. After a second night of unremitting snowfall, the weather on the morning of June 5th improved, and we decided to go on. Low and heavy clouds were still flowing down the East Rongbok Glacier, but precipitation ceased at an early hour and the sky brightened to the west. It was surprising. After all we had seen of the flakes passing our door, that no great amount of snow was lying on the stones about our camp. The snow had come on a warm current and melted or evaporated, so that after all the depth was no more than six inches at this elevation, 17,500 feet. Even on the glacier we went up a long way before noticing a perceptible increase of depth. We passed Camp 2, not requiring to halt at this stage, and were well up towards Camp 3 before the fresh snow became a serious impediment. It was still snowing up here, though not very heavily. There was nothing to cheer the grey scene. The clinging snow about our feet was so wet that even the best of our boots were soaked through, and the last two hours up to Camp 3 were tiresome enough. Nor was it a cheering camp when we reached it. The tents had been struck for the safety of the poles, but not packed up. We found them half full of snow and ice. The stores were all buried. Everything we wanted had first to be dug out. The snow up here was so much deeper than we anxiously discussed the possibility of going further. With 15 to 18 inches of snow to contend with, not counting drifts, the labour would be excessive, and until the snow solidified there would be considerable danger at several points. But the next morning broke fine. We had soon a clear sky and glorious sunshine. It was the warmest day that any of us remembered at Camp 3, and we watched the amazing rapidity with which the snow solidified and the rocks began to appear about our camp. Our spirits rose. The side of Everest facing us looked white and cold, but we observed a cloud of snow blown from the north ridge. It would not be long at this rate before it was fit to climb. We had already resolved to use oxygen on the third attempt. It was improbable that we should beat our own record without it, for the strain of previous efforts would count against us, and we had not put the time to improve on our organisation by putting a second camp above the North Col. 
Somerville, after Finch's explanation of the mechanical details, felt perfectly confident that he could manage the oxygen apparatus, and those who had used oxygen were convinced that they weren't up more easily with its help than they could expect to go without it. Somerville and I intended to profit by their experience. They had discovered that the increased combustion in the body required a larger supply of food. We must arrange for bountiful provision. Their camp at 25,000 feet had been too low. We would try to establish one now, as we had attended before, at 26,000 feet. We hoped for a further advantage in going higher than Finch and Bruce had done before using oxygen. Whereas they had started using it at 21,000 feet, we intended to go up to our own old camp at 25,000 feet without using it. Perhaps use a cylinder each up to 26,000 feet, and at all events, start from that height for the summit with a full supply of four cylinders. If this was not the correct policy as laid down by Professor Dreyer, it would at least be a valuable experiment. Our chief anxiety under these new conditions was to provide for the safety of our porters. We hoped that after fixing our fifth camp at 26,000 feet at the earliest three days, hence on the fourth day of fine weather, the porters might be able to go down by themselves to the North Col in easy conditions to guard against the dangers of concealed crevasses. There Crawford would meet them at the foot of the North Ridge to conduct them properly roped to Camp 4. As the supply officer at this camp, he would also be able to superintend the descent over the first steep slope of certain porters who would go down from Camp 4 without sleeping after carrying up their loads. But the North Col had first to be reached. With so much new snow to contend with, we should hardly get there in a day. If we were to make the most of our chance in the interval of fair weather, we should lose no time in carrying up the loads for some part of the distance. It was decided, therefore, to begin this work on the following day, June 7th. In the ascent to the North Col, after the recent snowfall, we considered that an avalanche was to be feared only in one place, the steep final slope below the shelf. There we could afford to run no risk. We must test the snow and be certain it was safe before we crossed this slope. Probably we should be obliged to leave our loads below it, having gained, as a result of our day's work, the great advantage of a track. An avalanche might also come down, we thought, on the first steep slope where the ascent began, but here it could do us no harm, and the behaviour of the snow on this slope would be a test of its condition. The party, Somerville, Crawford and I, with 14 porters, Wakefield was to be supply officer at Camp 3, set out at 8am. In spite of the hard frost of the previous night, the crust was far from bearing our weight. We sank up to our knees in almost every step, and two hours were taken in traversing the snowfield. At 10.15, Somerville, I, a porter, and Crawford, roped up in that order, began to work up the steep ice slope now covered with snow. It was clear that the three of us without lows must take the lead in turn, stamping out the track for our porters. These men, after their immense efforts on the first and second attempts, had all volunteered to go high, as they had said once more, and everything must be done to ease the terrible work of carrying the loads over soft snow. No trace was found of our previous tracks, and we were soon arguing as to where exactly they might be as we slanted across the slope. It was remarkable that the snow adhered so well to the ice that we were able to get up without cutting steps. Everything was done by trenching the snow to induce it to come down, if it would. Every test gave a satisfactory result. Once this crucial place was passed, we plodded on without hesitation. If the snow would not come down when we had formerly encountered steep bare ice, a fortiari, above, on the gentler slopes, we had nothing to fear. The thought of an avalanche was dismissed from our minds. It wasn't necessarily slow work, forging our way through the deep snow, but the party was going extraordinarily well, 
and the porters were evidently determined to get on. Somerville gave us a long lead, and Crawford next, in spite of the handicap of shorter legs, struggled upwards in some of the worst snow we met until I relieved him. I found the effort at each step so great that no method of breathing I had formerly employed was adequate. It was necessary to pause after each lifting movement for a whole series of breaths, rapid at first and gradually slower, before the weight was transferred again to the other foot. About one-thirty I halted, and the porters followed on three separate ropes, soon came up with the leading party. We should have been glad to stay where we were for a long rest, but the hour was already late, and as some of it was ready to take the lead again, we decided to push on. We were now about 400 feet below a conspicuous block of ice and 600 feet below Camp 4, still on the gentle slopes of the corridor. Somerville had advanced only 100 feet, rather up the slope than across it, and the last party of porters had barely begun to move up the steps. The scene was particularly bright and windless. As we rarely spoke, nothing was to be heard but the laboured panting of our lungs. This stillness was suddenly disturbed. We were startled by an ominous sound, sharp, arresting, violent, and yet somehow soft like the explosion of untamped gunpowder. I had never before on a mountainside heard such a sound, but all of us, I imagine, knew instinctively what it meant, as though we had become accustomed to hear it every day of our lives. In a moment I observed the surface of the snow, broken and puckered, where it had been even for a few yards to the right of me. I took two steps convulsively in this direction with some quick thought of getting us nearer to the edge of the danger that threatened us. Then I began to move slowly downwards, inevitably carried on the whole moving surface by a force I was utterly powerless to resist. Somehow I managed to turn out from the slope so as to be avoid being pushed headlong and backwards down it. For a second or two I seemed hardly to be in danger as I went quietly sliding down with the snow. Then the rope at my waist tightened and held me back. A wave of snow came over me and I was buried. I suppose that the matter was settled. However, I called to mind the experiences related to me by other parties, and it suggested that the best chance of escape in this situation lay in swimming. I thrust out my arms above my head and actually went through some sort of motions of swimming on my back. Beneath the surface of the snow, with nothing to inform the senses of the world outside it, I had no impression of speed after the first acceleration. I struggled in the tumbling snow, unconscious of everything else, until perhaps only a few seconds later, I knew the pace was easing up. I felt an increasing pressure about my body, and I wondered how tightly I should be squeezed, and then the avalanche came to rest. My arms were free. My legs were near the surface. After a brief struggle, I was standing again surprised and breathless in the motionless snow. But the rope was tight at my waist. The porter tied on next to me, I suppose, must be deeply buried. To my further surprise, he quickly emerged unharmed as myself. Somerville and Crawford, too, though they had been above me by the rope's length, were now quite close and soon extricated themselves. We subsequently made out that their experiences had been very similar to mine, but where were the rest? Looking down the foam of snow, we saw one group of porters some little distance, perhaps 150 feet below us. Presumably the others must be buried somewhere between us and them, and though no sign of these missing men appeared, we at once prepared to find and dig them out. The porters we saw still stood their ground instead of coming up to help. We soon made out that they were the party who had been immediately behind us, and they were pointing below them. They had travelled further than us in the avalanche, presumably because they were nearer the centre, where it was moving more rapidly. The other two parties, one of four and one of five men roped together, must have been carried even further.
we could still hope that they were safe. But as we hurried down, we soon saw that beneath the place where the four porters were standing was a formidable drop. It was only too plain that the missing men had been swept over it. We had no difficulty in finding a way round this obstacle. In a very short time, we were standing under its shadow. The ice cliff was from 40 to 60 feet high in different places. The crevasse at its foot was more or less filled up with avalanche snow. Our fears were soon confirmed. One man was quickly uncovered and found to be still breathing. Before long, we were certain that he would live. Another whom we dug out near him had been killed by the fall. He and his party appeared to have struck the hard lip of the crevasse and were lying under the snow on or near the ridge of it. The four porters who had escaped soon pulled themselves together after the first shock of the accident and now worked here with Crawford and did everything they could to extricate the other bodies. While Somerville and I went down the crevasse, a loop of rope which we pulled up convinced us that the other party must be there. It was slow work, loosening the snow with a pick or adze or an ice axe and shoveling it with our hands, but we were able to follow the rope to the bodies. One was dug up lifeless, another was found upside down, and when we uncovered his face, Somerville thought he was still breathing. We had the greatest difficulty in extricating the man. So tightly was the snow packed around his limbs. His load, four oxygen cylinders on his steel frame, had to be cut from his back, and eventually he was dragged out. Though buried for about 40 minutes, he had survived the fall and the suffocation, and suffered no serious harm. Of the two others in this party of four, we found only one. We had at length to give up a hopeless search with a certain knowledge that the first of them to be swept over the cliff, and the most deeply buried, must long ago be dead. Of the other five, all the bodies were recovered, but only one was alive. The two who had so marvellously escaped were able to walk down to Camp 3, and were almost perfectly well the next day. The other seven were killed. This tragic calamity was naturally the end of the third attempt to climb Mount Everest. The surviving porters who had lost their friends or brothers behaved with dignity, making no noisy parade of the grief they felt. We asked them whether they wished to go up and bring down the bodies for orderly burial. They preferred to leave them where they were. For my part, I was glad of this decision. What better burial could one have than to lie in the snow where they fell? In their honour, a large cairn was built at Cairn 3. A few words might be added with this regard to this accident. No one will imagine we had pushed on recklessly disregarding the new conditions of fresh snow. Three members of the Alpine Club, with experience of judging snow for themselves, chiefly, of course, in the Alps, had all supposed that the party was safe. They had imagined that on those gentle slopes, the snow would not move. In what way had they been deceived? The fact that the avalanche snow came to rest on the slope where they were proves that their calculations were not so very far wrong. But the snow cannot all have been of the quality that adhered so well to the steep ice slope lower down. Where the avalanche started, not far from the line of their steps, but a hundred feet higher, it was shaded to some extent by a broken wall of ice. There, perhaps, it had both drifted more deeply and remained more free and powdery, and the weight of this snow was probably sufficient to push the other down the slope once its surface had been disturbed. More experience, more knowledge, might perhaps have warned us not to go there. One can never know enough about snow. But looking up the corridor again after the event, I wondered how I could ever have been certain not to be deceived by appearances so innocent. Regret of all members of the expedition for the loss of our seven porters will have been elsewhere expressed. It is my part only to add this. The work of carrying up our camps on Mount Everest is beyond the range of a simple contract measured in terms of money. 
The porters had come to share in our enterprise, and these men died in an act of voluntary service, freely rendered and faithfully performed. End of chapter 10, part 19.